0: All right, so this morning we look to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I wanted to read uh, verses 12 to 19. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and it reads, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised and our preaching is vain, your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, We are of all men most to be pitied. May God bless the reading of his word. When we look to this passage, we are still studying the fact of Jesus Christ's resurrection. We're looking at the fact of his resurrection. But we also come to a place where we're looking at the arguments against his resurrection. And I want to tell you why those arguments are as they are. As we understand Paul's letter to the Corinthians overall, particularly in this section, Paul provides Here, a correction. He provides a correction, specifically a corrections to the factions as they had emerged in First Corinthians chapters one and three. We are not forcing that into this section. It is a continuous letter that Paul is writing and he's addressing an actual problem. He's addressing a problem at its root. And the problem that he faced is way back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We mention it often. I want to remind you of it. I want to point you to it. And I want you to understand how this context exists within that context as well. When we look at 1 Corinthians, uh, we see uh, chapter 1 verse 11. For I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I of, Ap- I of Apollos, I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Verse 13, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And so you see here that what he's addressing is something that is a longstanding pervasive issue. An issue that has taken root in the life of the Corinthian church. But also there is a remedy for this. He revisits the same in first Corinthians chapter three. We'll look there very briefly as he addresses the very same concern and all the effects. So when we look to that passage, you see that he begins to address the jealousy, the rivalry. Look with me, if you will, for verse uh, verse one of chapter three in first Corinthians. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as the spiritual men, but as to men of flesh. As to infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, and you are, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men, that is men in the flesh? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. And so you see that he sets forth a correction, a correction in their thinking, a correction in their practice. Specifically, when you look to this chapter, it's not as though that faction and all the effects of it just withered away. It's not as though that it just simply passed on. Or it was certainly not as though that Paul wanted to sweep it all under the rug, so to speak. Paul wanted to deal with it head on because of its devastating effects in the life of the people of God and in the life of the church as a collective. Specifically, in the previous verses of our chapter, Paul explained why he was not to be elevated beyond Christ or above any other man. He starts with himself, just as he did in chapter one. Just as he did in chapter three, he used himself as an example as to why he should not be elevated beyond Christ. Look with me, if you will, for verse nine of chapter 15, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace, his grace toward me did not prove vain but I labored even more than all of them yet not I but the grace of God with me he dispels with competition he dispels with rivalry which breeds jealousy he dispels with all the marks of fleshly men who try to compare themselves with one another and Paul gives a warning against that type of comparison as well look at verse 11 this will be important as we look further through the text but verse 11 says whether then it was i or they so we preach whether i preached to you or the other apostles preached so we preached we collectively were saying the same things we were trying to arrive at the same result that is conviction by the holy spirit So he says, whether it was I or they, so we preach, so you believe. We talked about this last time. Paul says, I labored more than them all, the grace of God in me. But he's not saying they didn't labor. He's saying that his scope and the depth of what he did for Christ excelled beyond them. But it was because he had done so much against the church. Paul had perspective not to allow himself to be worshipped. That wouldn't make for a good origin story to start a cult. That he once tried to kill the Christians, and now he's trying to reach all the Christians. In fact, most men would blot that out of their own history. They would blot out testimony about their ruthlessness, their savageness, and their sins. Everybody wants to be saved by age three. But Paul didn't do that. Paul said, I was the worst of the worst because I, fully grown, fully mature in the eyes of the law, I tried to kill the Christians. I followed through with apostate religions interpretation and I went after the Christians. And so he says, because of that, I don't deserve to be an apostle. I don't deserve to be preaching to you. You not only hear humility, you can see it. You can see humility. Well, I believe that more than just Paul showing humility, he's showing them how to escape factions, how to tear down factions. And he starts with himself. He starts with himself decreasing, as John the Baptist said, and with Christ increasing, as John the Baptist said. In the same way, Paul did not want the Corinthians to look at himself or the apostles and install imagined or romanticized qualities about the apostles in order to worship them. The apostles were all on equal plane with one another. The people of that time could visibly see how exhaustively Paul labored. I'm certain they could see that in the church. They may not have always appreciated it, but they could see it. The other apostles could see it. And you know what Paul said? That's true in the natural sense. But all praise, honor, and glory to God. Because I couldn't labor extensively like this except for the grace of God in me. So he gave the praise and honor to God himself instead of giving praise and honor to himself. Paul never took a victory lap for the purpose of taking a victory lap. He only appealed to what God had accomplished and what God would ultimately finish. Most importantly, Paul understood something as well, because if he only stopped with himself, I believe that people would worship him for what he went through. Paul had to replace something in their minds. If you tear down people's idols, even hero worship, which I believe is the greatest idol of our country, hero worship, personality cults, you must absolutely replace the hero with something. You have to replace the idol with something. For Paul, he wanted to replace their idols with something. He wanted to bring forward And to bring high and lofty the image and person of the resurrected Jesus Christ, who is the only one worthy of all of our worship. Paul said, I want to dethrone every man in the face of Christ, and I want to enthrone Christ above every man. That is vital to the modern church's existence. Moving forward, not only through our time, but well beyond our time until Christ returns. It is vital to enthrone Christ above every man and to dethrone man in the face of Christ. In the case of the Corinthians, it was certainly related to the fact that, as we said, many of them held to factions. They worshiped men. They worshiped men who loved Christ. They worshiped Christ falsely by installing him as a faction head. They used his name to propagate what they were about. That is a very dangerous thing because Christ is not a faction leader. And essentially what Paul is referring to in this passage. Yes, he's dealing with the content of prophecy. Yes, he's dealing with the content of what languages would have been had been spoken in that time. But he's also dealing with how do you dethrone the factions? How do you solve the problem, Corinthians, of the personality cults that have arisen in the life of that church? They held the factions, but also that in subscribing to the factions, you know what happened? They attacked the person and work of Jesus Christ, because that's what happens. When you install factions, you eventually verbally attack Christ. It's why when you hear false doctrine come out of men's mouths, It's because they have installed either one another or some other thing or some other icon or image to a place above Christ. And so they've already dethroned him in their hearts. Now they have to dethrone him with their mouths. But for Paul, it wasn't to be so. Even when he talked about himself, he always talked about himself in light of God's grace toward him. I know in an adulterous time in which we find ourselves... When you look at just the overall landscape of the church at large, the confessing church at large, it is quite frustrating for people who are prone to idolatry, to not have someone to worship. That becomes frustrating to them. When you say, what books are you reading? And you say the Bible. They get frustrated. When you say, who do you walk with? I walk with Christ. They get frustrated with you. Who mentored you? Nobody has mentored me. The teachings of the apostles in Christ mentored me. They think that those are arrogant statements, but it's because the idolatry that's seeping in their hearts and coming out of their mouths does not have room for a resurrected and enthroned eternal Christ. They think he's too small. They want something they can touch and see. They want to walk by sight and not by faith, which informs our sight. So Paul had to defend what was under attack. I believe that is a task that you and I are tasked with as well. We have to defend what is under attack. That line that we must attack is the line that we must hold because things are under attack. Paul says, take every thought captive. We're casting down imaginations and exaltations against Christ. We're defending the faith, the corpus that we have once and for all delivered to the saints. Paul defended what was under attack. He begins with the correction towards some in Corinth. It wasn't all, but it was some. It was a lot of them. And the attack that was waged as unchecked sin, it fostered idolatry. But idolatry caused the attack. Idolatry caused the attack. Look at verse 12. You see the attack. He starts with now because he's about to move to something that needs correction. Whenever you see that in Corinthians, you typically see it as a corrective. Whenever you see now, it doesn't mean that he's moved on to a new issue. He's moved on to an issue related to all the others that he needs to correct. It's a new issue in the sense that it's tied to something that he hasn't addressed necessarily But it's also tied to the root problem. You see here he says, now if Christ is preached, because he was, in that context, that he has been raised from the dead, because that's what they were preaching, that's what the apostles were preaching, that's what Paul was preaching. Look at the attack. How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? How could they possibly not want to be resurrected with Christ? (coughs) Well, they settled. They settled for factions. And so Paul wants to correct this. I don't believe that's the only reason they came up with it. It's because in some ways you're starting to see that the test that they were to pass, they're beginning to fail. The test of their faith. But if you look at this, Paul questions them. How do some among you say, that there is no resurrection of the dead. But look at where he starts. This is very important to everything that is the substance and most important of our Christian faith, because everything is most important. He assumes the resurrection. He assumes the preaching of Christ, the preaching of the resurrected Christ. He assumes that those are the very things that belong in the life of the church consistently and constantly. He assumes that if we are to meet Christ, We are to meet the one who is exalted, resurrected, eternal. The one who will gather us up to himself on that great day. So we see that he assumes it. He assumes that the resurrection of Christ was divine and historical fact. He assumes it. He doesn't go through a list of ways to prove it. He's already done that. If you look at verse 12, he says, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, why are you all questioning that? Why are you questioning that? Because it happened. Why are you saying it didn't happen when it happened? Paul wanted to challenge and correct those who were saying Christ had not been raised. As I said, what led them there was their idolatry. When you begin to look at someone, and I mean you as the greater, larger of those who hold to idolatry, to, uh, to but when you begin to look to another man, another icon, another image, eventually you have to dispense with the true Christ. You have to get rid of him. You have to attack what he did and who he is. You have to mute that, but you also have to take him away from the people. And so Paul was very concerned that this was happening, to say the least. But what led them there was their idolatry, their factions. This wasn't simply a discourse on the gospel. What Paul was saying was, because you hold the factions, you have arrived to the place where you are questioning sound teaching about Jesus Christ. Where you are challenging it. You are challenging Christ himself. You're saying the one who will soon return, you don't believe it. You remember a little detail that I shared with you that may have been little at the time. You know where this started? It started when they questioned if Paul were going to come to them. They begin to question if the apostles were faithful. If Paul would really show up. And back then, you wonder why in the chapters that preceded this one, why Paul went into this great defense of his not only reliability, but The fact that he is one who is sent by God himself to come to them. They challenge that first. So you see that this trending toward apostasy begins with challenging those who actually belong to Christ. It doesn't always start with challenging Christ. Some people lift their voices to sing to Christ, so they think. But they won't accept people who come in the name of Christ to tell them the things that Christ has for them. Well, that's what happened. That was the sequence of events that back then they challenged Paul and said, you're not coming to us. Now, that would seem a very mundane and little thing to say, well, I am going to come to you. Well, no, they were questioning if Paul were sent. They were questioning if Paul were reliable. They were questioning if there was a Christ at all who needed apostles. And you see that questioning then comes out. And hits the resurrection. I believe that's why Paul defended that then. He said, I am coming to you. And when I come to you, it's going to look like this. You remember that? I'm going to call you to repent. I could come to you in preaching and fellowship, but since you won't listen, I'll come to you and I'll rebuke you. So you see there, he had to defend his coming to them because they were beginning to challenge if there were even apostles to come to him at all. You'll see in 2 Corinthians, they challenged the apostleship. It's this open challenge toward what God actually has. And Paul is trying to push back against that. But their factions led them there, their schism, their propensity to praise and worship man. It's why Paul said, you've been bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Christ has already purchased you. Belong to him. Be loyal to him. Be with him. Fellowship with men. Fellowship with believers. But don't worship and praise them. You've been bought out of that. So then. You see here. Some were saying there was no resurrection of the dead. This has huge implications. No resurrection of the dead. They're implying two things. They're implying that. And Paul will actually say this a little further down. The power of Christ's resurrection was not efficacious. That is, effective with divine power. Was not efficacious toward those who had been in him. So therefore, in other words, it had no power. That's one implication. And therefore, those who have died... Have died without eternal life. They were not saved by him. And then I believe there's another implication. The implication is that the resurrection of Christ had not happened at all. I believe that's why we see what we do in verse 4 that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. You see Paul preaching this in sequence. We talked about that last time. And that he appeared to Cephas. Now he's beginning to give them the actual fact. Because they were challenging the facts. Then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Most of whom are still alive. What would be your motive to lie if you can go to the people and ask the people who actually saw it for themselves? But some have died. But they died with great hope. So to disparage Christ is to disparage all who witnessed what they did. It is to say that they are all liars. Look at verse seven. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Let's look at this on a temporal scale that has divine implications. If you say that there's no resurrection, you are saying that Paul is a liar. If you say that there's no resurrection, you're saying all the witnesses were lying. If you say there's no resurrection, you're saying that the Christians have simply made this up. If you're saying there's no resurrection, there is no Peter, there is no James, there are no 12. There's no Paul the Apostle who has the authority to say what he's saying. It's all fairy tales. It's all myth. It is devastating to say that. That's just on the temporal scale. Look with me if you will. At verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead. Look at this. This is the greatest implication. A false implication. Not even Christ has been raised. Not even Christ has been raised. If that's true, we're all cursed. That's what Paul says. Paul not only traced where the argument led, but he's also showing them the source of this argument against the resurrection of Christ is not some philosophical enlightenment. It's unbelief. It is damning, cursed, unbelief. Yes, he is pointing out an implication of their argument. But he's also pointing out to them what unbelief sounds like. When you challenge anything that Christ actually did, you hold to a heart of unbelief. Some may challenge it verbally. Some may challenge it through practice, through their orthopraxy. They may say the things that we would agree with, but the things they do, they openly challenge Christ. And I think that was more of the problem that led to the problem of now being comfortable to verbally challenge Christ. Because for a time, look at the Corinthians. They swept their sins under the rug. They practiced the Lord's Supper. They were doing things ritualistically, of course. They look like a church. They were even aware of Cephas, Apollos, Paul and their influence in the church. These great men of the faith, even Jesus Christ. Let's build factions. And Paul is saying, no. You arrive at the point of worshiping and exalting Christ in the way that he has said, and that's the only option. But they challenge this resurrection. If Christ, verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, look at this, then our preaching is vain. Furthermore, your faith also is vain. It's useless. It counts for nothing. There's no point in it. It was a destructive argument because, as I mentioned, it was implying so many things. But it was implying that the apostles, too, were false teachers. Do you see what these factions have done in our our country? I'll just stay in our country. People who are preaching the word of God are deemed false teachers. People who are openly standing on the word of God are no longer welcomed amongst people who claim to be speaking for God. Paul said 2000 years ago, I'm warning you, I'm warning you. I often hear of dear brothers and sisters who are under attack and they're faithful. And I see people just having this triumphalistic parade over what they believe is the corpses of people that they have disfellowshipped or kicked out of their meaningless fellowships anyway. And the one thought I always have when I see a true sound brother and or sister accused. I look at these people who are doing it and I say they better be right. They better be right. I look at this with Paul. Paul. These people who are arguing against the resurrection, you say they better be right because if they're wrong, they have to face him themselves and he will set it right. The implications are so stirring and the stakes are extremely high. Again, this is not simply some gospel discourse, some academic seminar. Paul is saying your factions have led you to question not only myself, not only the other apostles, not only the witnesses. You are saying that Christ has not been raised. You are saying Christ hasn't been raised. I'm sure there are people today who would probably preach this text and defend it, but still live as though Christ has not been raised. Paul saw this as a matter of not only preaching, because the preaching informs the life. The preaching comes from the word of God. He saw this as a manner of life. Living as though Christ has been raised. This was dangerous because it would nullify their preaching. It would nullify all the prophecy that came before it. But not only their preaching, it would nullify their faith. It was self-destructive. You see, so many speak about heresy and other things as if it's only devastating to some collective group of people. The problem with heresy and false teaching is that it's self-destructive. It's self-destructive. The people who bring it must spend eternity under God's wrath for it. It's Yes, it causes devastation, but people only speak in this way of guardianship. And I believe that that is certainly true. By that I mean, yes, we must guard. We must be on guard. The word certainly teaches those things. But I believe the word certainly teaches this. You must guard yourself. You must be on guard for yourself. Remember, the word of God says you must watch your own teaching. Watch yourself in your teaching. And I say that because that's what Paul is trying to get out of the Corinthians. He's telling them you have to watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. You're bringing destruction upon your own heads. I believe earlier in this passage, it all ties together. It's why he brings up Israel. Look after their example. Because a lot of the things that Old Testament Israel did, they were self-destructive things. They destroyed themselves. Sure, they were certainly under judgment where other nations came in. But their unbelief is what destroyed them. Look at the time of Christ. Self-destructive. A self-destructive people. So it was destructive. If you look at this. Paul is saying this would nullify the preaching. And not only their preaching, but also their faith. It would all be a sham. It would all be a myth. He says as much in verse 15. Look at this. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. Because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if, in fact, the dead are not raised. In other words, if Christ were not raised, that's what God decreed, and we would be preaching to the contrary. And we would be fighting against God's decrees. We would be false witnesses of God. If God indeed was not raised and we're saying he was God in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, Well, then we are false witnessing before God himself. Paul raises the stakes to a level that one cannot escape. He brings them before God because that's where all the arguments really are. All the arguments about doctrine, all the arguments concerning what the word of God teaches. And I mean, the good arguments, all the things that you and I believe and that we hold to and that we think that we proclaim. it all happens before God. It is all before his throne, his heavenly court. What we hold to, what we believe, is before him. The angels long to look after those things. But what we ascribe to is not simply for ourselves. It's not simply relegated to our age, the time in which we live. It's not simply relegated to the place in which we attend in fellowship. It is before God. And so Paul says... You fail the test before God if you're claiming something contrary to what we say. And if this were true, that Christ wasn't raised before God, we have false witness. And I think we can look back to the Old Testament and see what God thinks about false witnesses. Paul says "Then we would be condemned. If we're preaching a resurrection and it didn't happen, we would be condemned. I think simply... I like when things are ideologically black and white. I like when there is no neutrality in between. I like when there is a condition or a cause and then there's an effect. I like when something is yes or no, right or wrong. In this, it's either Christ has been raised or he hasn't been. It's either what we're doing this morning is a sham or it is the most glorious thing that man can do. Paul sets that up for the Corinthians because in their argument they were trying to dethrone the existence of the Lord's church. They were trying to dethrone the head of the church. And if you cut off the head, the body will follow. The apostles, those who preached the resurrected Christ, you see that they did early in the chapter. Paul says, this is the content of our preaching. Those who preached a resurrected Christ and a resurrection from the dead for those who believe in Christ, if they were preaching contrary, as I've said, they would be guilty of false witness. They would be guilty, guilty, guilty. You see here, as I've said, there's no in between. There's no areas where Paul gave them an opportunity to be, quote unquote, charitable, to agree to disagree. Or not to, quote unquote, throw out the baby with the bathwater. Paul said either Christ has been resurrected and we come to you in truth and we belong to him and we are true witnesses or he hasn't been if you say so and we are false, we are cursed men. We're liars. He basically is saying this to them. He's saying to them either you are liars or we are liars. But somebody's lying. Their witness was based on what God had actually accomplished. The apostles. It was based on what God had actually accomplished. That's what the apostolic witness was. Paul says it to you. He Jesus showed up to all these individuals post, uh, post-Calvary, post-crucifixion, during his resurrection. He shows up and he bears witness and testimony of himself. So it was based on what the apostles preached was what God had actually accomplished. That's the substance of my faith. That's the substance of your faith if you're in Christ, right? It's what God had actually accomplished. It's not what I think happened, what I hope happened. I have faith that it occurred just as God said. And I see the residual effect of that. I can see that I serve a risen Christ. I know what that looks like. I've seen his work in others. I've seen his work in myself. I've seen his work in his church. I've seen his power, his power to save, his power to cast down those who are against him. And I hope for his sure and certain return as you and I are standing here staring at each other. I know I will set my eyes upon his face. I know it for certain. And I believe it because God has told me that. God has told you that. He said it in his word. He said, this is how I have come, and this is how I will return. Why then challenge that, O Corinthians? Why then challenge that, anyone in the modern age, in any way? uh, They based... Their witness on what God had actually accomplished. That's such a simple thing, but it's a very powerful thing. They were not divisive for holding fast to what God had actually done. The work of so many who, from age to age, want to bring up new philosophies, new schools of thought, is to take you off the pathway of what God had actually accomplished. Of being a witness for what Christ has actually done. They were not divisive for holding fast to that. The apostles were not divisive for that. They would be accused of those things. But I will tell you this. Those who were attacking it were divisive. Those who were attacking it were divisive. Paul needed them to be corrected. He needed them to be corrected before their lives ended and they had to meet with God in his wrath for unbelief. He needed them to correct this. It wasn't just the church was at stake. Yeah, that's true. Their souls were at stake. Their spirits were at stake. And bodily they would suffer forever if they didn't get this right. You sense not a desperation because Paul thought God's power could not save. It was a desperation because their time was almost up. Unbelief gets worse, not better. It grows more cancerous and pervasive. It doesn't shrink. It doesn't go away. That's why I believe what's raging through this letter is the conflict we were first introduced to. It didn't get better just because people got along. Paul needed to correct everything that that conflict touched, including up to and including the resurrection itself. The very understanding of eternity was also at stake. The very understanding of eternity was also at stake. This impacts how people live in every way. Your understanding of eternity impacts how you live. The resurrection deals with that. The hope that you have beyond the time of your own. When you have lived your final day and have taken your final breath, what then awaits beyond you? The Christian lives in light of that fact, not trying to escape it, but in light of it. You take that away, it's hopeless. You say that didn't happen or claim that didn't happen. The implications then of a finished life. No one can live a finished life. You're saying Christ didn't live a finished life and thereby was resurrected. So eternity was at stake. And we can't mess with eternity. Paul did not want people to live in such a way so as to believe the lie that there was no resurrection of the dead. With the implication of that Christ had not risen. Sure, he didn't want people to believe it, but you live what you believe. He didn't want people to live that way. Think about how dark, desperate, cold, a life without a resurrected Christ really is. It goes absolutely nowhere but destruction. Paul didn't want them to live that way. This is attacking the hope of the Christian. It's attacking the hope of the Christian. And this is a real hope based in eternal reality. It's a real hope based in eternal reality. Yes, we live our lives through the temporal. That is time. Time is linear. It has a beginning. It has a middle. And it has a conclusion, an end. And then we're on to eternity. And what we do here impacts eternity. But... In the time that we're here, we have a hope that doesn't make us ashamed. We have a hope that we long and look toward. And yes, at times we can be distracted from that hope, but we never abandon that hope. And so Paul wanted to keep that hope alive in the hearts of the Christian. But it's attacking a real hope. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ Has been raised. Verse 17. And look at this. He deals with them. If Christ has not been raised. Your faith is worthless. Your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Do you understand. Why people are so discouraged today. Do you understand why people are living. Worthless and hopeless lives. It's because. They don't hear of the resurrection or they barely hear of the resurrection. Maybe Easter Sunday. Maybe they'll make a show of it. But people are not confronted with the reality or exhorted and encouraged with the reality of the resurrection of Christ. I think there's multiple ways to take the resurrection of Christ away from people. It's not simply the open challenge of the Corinthians. You can do it through all kinds of means. But when you do it, it has the same effect. It has the effect of people living in light of a faith that is not rooted in what God has actually accomplished in Christ. But Paul says this it affects salvation. It affects salvation. I'll be very clear with you. All things do. All things pertaining to the Christian faith affect salvation. Don't let anyone who's living a hopeless a hopeless life simply because they have fanfare tell you otherwise. Everything impacts our salvation. Everything. Everything has a stake in the claim of our eternity because God is looking at how we live in light of the whole, not just the parts, but how the parts fit into the whole. All this talk of is this a salvation issue? Is this a salvation issue? Is that a salvation issue? If it's dealing with our faith, we want our faith to have substance, eternal worth. And if it touches it in any way, it touches it in every way. It doesn't mean that you're not patient with people. It doesn't mean you don't walk with people through things. It doesn't mean people won't stumble and fall and need to confess their sins and repent and trust in what Christ has accomplished. But it does mean that all of it is important from an eternal perspective, all of it. And that's what Paul was trying to gain, was trying to get at and help them gain in their understanding of the faith. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. Our faith would be useless, not even good enough for this life. It is why the demonic ideas that have come up over the last hundred years, several hundred years, that Christianity, true Christianity is, quote unquote, an opiate of the masses. Or that somehow Christianity is some kind of uh, simply a psychological crutch for people who cannot cope with this life. This puts all that to rest. Because the thing is that Our faith is rooted in what happens next, but it's also rooted in what is happening now. We're not simply holding to a faith, hoping to get better by and by or hoping for some beyond. No, it's right now that we're living. We're living now. I'm not looking for a crutch. I'm looking for something with power and substance. And I haven't found it in and of myself. I found it because Christ has granted it. Now I know what I'm looking for. Not looking for an opiate, something to just give me a pick me up. The substance of our faith is what Christ has accomplished that impacts us now and in eternity. I wish the one who said that thought differently. But I do say this that it is not a coping religion. Christianity is not a coping religion. It is a triumphant faith. It is a triumphant faith. And that's what Paul holds up before them. A triumphant faith that deals with eternity and deals with eternity in certain terms. Not speaking of it like who really knows. We just hope maybe, maybe if we go to this geographical location, we'll eventually get to meet God. No, it is eternal certainty that Paul is talking about. If you take away the one who ushered that in, it's hopeless. Then it's hopeless. So the idea then is we are not coping, we are hoping. We're not coping, trying to make it through the moment. It's no, we are hopeful. The inner man is being renewed day by day. The outer man is wasting away. But in that we have a hope that we are certain. We are strong in that hope. Yes, our bodies may be weak. We may be fatigued. We may be distressed at times. Persecuted at times. But the hope in us is stronger than ever. Because it's based on an eternal reality. It's based on the kingdom that's actually ours. Look at this. Then those... He traces the implication. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, have perished. If this no resurrection thing were true, that's the implication. It's not that we can't cope with that. It's that that's not true. It's a lie. Verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, so let's back up. It's why I say religion is not the opiate of the masses when you're talking about True Christianity. It's because Paul says if Christ isn't raised, abandon it. Abandon it. It's not even a good crutch. If it doesn't speak to eternity, it does nothing for you in this life. If we have hoped in Christ in this in this life only, and there's no eternity, no resurrection, we are all we are of all men most to be pitied. The implication is that if Christ had not been raised, we are still in our sins. I would say that's the greatest hopelessness of all. But let me give you hope. I'm so glad it doesn't end here. Look at verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. You hear the certainty here. You see your hope here. You see the revitalization of God's man. For as in Adam all die. Oh, yes, that's true. But look at this. So also in Christ, all will be made alive. And then he deals with all of this in the next chapter, whereas he dethrones the arguments that they want to exalt man. He begins to, as we look forward, enthrone the risen Christ to his proper prominent and eternal place in the thought of man let's pray